The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text for this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of this Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God from the beginning, became a second Adam at his incarnation. And so Jesus as the second Adam, fully God and fully man, faced the temptation of the devil like the first Adam. The first Adam succumbed to the temptation. And Jesus, the second Adam, overcame it. And he overcame every other temptation to sin and endured all the sufferings of his life, even crucifixion unto death, faithfully, without sin, And God raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul puts the contrasting atoms and their far-reaching effects into two verses that I'd like to read for you. 
Romans 5, 18 and 19. As one trespass, that'd be the trespass of the first Adam, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that would be the second Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I say that just to put the temptation of Jesus into context here. The success of Christ's saving mission, his gospel mission, was put to the test in these temptations. And Jesus did not sin. He remained righteous. He did not waver. But he remained steadfast in in his calling and in the path of suffering on his way to eternal glory. He triumphed over sin and Satan. And he triumphed for the glory of God and for the good of his people, for us. And, And therefore, he's worthy of our love and our trust and our honor and our praise and our treasuring. My aim in this message, it, it's really simple, is, is that you would see Jesus in this text and respond accordingly with worship and love and trust and hope and joy and treasuring. I mean, a lot of people would look at this text and say, oh, this is about how we're to resist suffering. And that would be an implication, but that's not Luke's intention. There's no commands here for us at all. It's all one big look, see, behold, and love, and trust, and honor, and worship. So my aim is really simple, that God would grant us eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ here described and respond with hearts of faith, love and trust, joy and hope. So Father in heaven, make it so now as we look into this text. Make it so. Do what only you can do in us. Open our eyes to see and open our hearts to worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just have one word to, you know, one word, one, one chunk to, to, uh, to set up the context. It's, I don't believe it's in dispute, not even for Satan at this point in the text, that Jesus is the son of the living God. It's, it's established at this time. Jesus knows this. Satan knows this. And Luke has been laboring to make sure his readers know this. Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not an ordinary teacher, not an or, ordinary prophet. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. So here, just in Luke, just a quick flyover how 
Luke is beating the drum that Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke 1, the word of Gabriel to Jesus' earthly mother. You will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And again, a few verses later in Luke 1, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 2, when Jesus parents thought they lost him in Jerusalem. Jesus is 12. Jesus explained to them, like, what, did you not know that I must be in the house, in, in my father's house? He was in the temple teaching at 12 years old, in his father's house. Jesus knows he's the son of God. Luke chapter 3, at Christ's baptism, you know where I'm going, the, the heavens speak. God speaks. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then in the genealogy, in the latter half of Luke chapter 3, the genealogy traces all the way back to son of Adam. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph. Jesus, Joseph, all the way back to son of Adam, son of God, which sets up this line of Jesus being the second Adam. Now here in our text, Satan approaches Jesus as the second Adam, the eternal son of the living God. Like I say, I don't think that's in dispute, so that's, that's context. Now, what I want to do with the rest of the time is just walk through the three temptations and then make some concluding remarks at the end. So the outline's really simple. Three temptations, and then I'll close. Note that it wasn't Satan who led Jesus into the wilderness. You see that? Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after his baptism and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, is being tempted, present tense participle, being tempted by the devil. What's the first temptation? Verse 3. Satan approaches Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. What's the nature of that temptation? I mean, Satan could be taunting, sowing seeds of doubt in Jesus' mind about his sonship. But, I mean, some see that. I don't think that's it. Because the word if there seems better translated since. Since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the temptation, as I read it, assumes Christ's sonship. Well, at face value, the, the temptation is, is a physically intense temptation, isn't it? Jesus is been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. He's very hungry. His 
stomach is screaming probably for relief. Satan is tempting Jesus to use his divine power to relieve his intense hunger, which is causing his suffering. You fast for 40 days, you're suffering. Christ knows that obedience to God and to his God-given mission will necessarily entail suffering. And the Spirit has led him out into the wilderness for this fast. He's he's not going to relieve the suffering and dishonor God and deny the fast that that God the Holy Spirit has put him on. Think about it in the larger context of Christ's sufferings. Jesus will teach the disciples later in verse 9 and other places, or excuse me, chapter 9 and other places, chapter 9, 22. He says to the disciples, look, understand this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So knowing this, I go back to his temptation, I think. Giving in to this temptation to satisfy his hunger, breaking the fast by miraculous means would be a betrayal of God's mission for him, which entails suffering even to the point of death. So he doesn't cave. I thought of another point in Jesus' life that was kind of like this, except worse. Where, where Jesus says he could have used his divine power to get out of the suffering, but he didn't. Remember, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane with the disciples. They'd eaten the Passover supper, and Judas had left to betray Jesus, and Judas came back with a crowd of soldiers and representatives of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus. Judas kissed Jesus to identify Jesus as the one to arrest. The soldier seized Jesus, and Peter, remember this? Peter quickly pulled out his sword and started swinging it and took off the right ear of one of the soldiers, or excuse me, uh, of the servant of the high priest who would come to arrest Jesus. So, Remember what Jesus said to Peter at that point? Before he healed the, the servant's ear, put it back on, Jesus said this, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup of suffering. And he added, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 
But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It's John 18, 11 and Matthew 26, 53. So back in our text, what I see is Satan is tempting Jesus to scrap his God-given messianic mission, which entails first suffering and death and then triumph and reign and eternal glory in fulfillment of the word of God. It's way bigger than just bread. So Jesus responds in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The parallel passage in Matthew 4.4 adds the rest of the text. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, look, my life is sustained not merely by bread, but by believing and doing every word from God. God's word can and will sustain me through this 40-day fast, through all the sufferings that are ahead, and through my crucifixion. I'm clinging to the word and not checking out on my calling. Second temptation. The devil took Jesus to a high place and showed him, quote, this is verse 5, all the kingdoms of the world. And he made a promise to Jesus in verse 6. To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Just feel satanic coming out of my mouth. What's the nature of this temptation here? Satan is saying, I will grant you to reign over all the kingdoms of this earth with with all authority and the glory that the world has that's now coming to me, I'll give it to you. I mean, in our present world, could think of it like this. Jesus, you will reign with glory and power and dominion over the U.S. and Canada and North America, over Europe, the U.K., and, and all of Europe and Russia and the Ukraine and all the Baltics and China and all of Asia, both Koreas. Jesus, you can reign over Latin America and South America, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, the Caribbean, Jesus, you will reign over ISIS and the the drug gangs and the drug cartels and the Wagner group, and you'll reign over it all. I'll give it all to you. 
Now, why wait? Nothing else need be done. Bend the knee. Bend the knee and it's all yours. Satan is offering Jesus a pseudo-portion of something that God has already more fully granted Jesus. Namely, that he would be king over all kingdoms. The catch is, it's, it's even less. Remember, I, I, I think I referred to this in the beginning, didn't I? Every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Satan's only promising the earth. <laughs> Not all the glory of the heavens and all the dominion of the underworld as well as the earth. So Satan's promising Jesus a portion here of what God has already promised Jesus. And the messianic promises make clear. And Philippians 2.10, which I just cited, makes clear. So this is, this is diabolical. Just as Jesus' public ministry is about to begin, just before all the teachings of the gospel go out, just before his sufferings, are about to begin and climax. Satan, in effect, says, Jesus, I can fulfill your destiny. I can make you king of kings. I have them to give. This authority and glory on earth, it's yours. Just bend the knee. Does Satan have power to do that? The answer is a qualified yes. From the Bible, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2. The Apostle John informs us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus knows Satan has this to give. Because Satan has been granted limited authority over this earth under the sovereignty of God for a time. For a time. You see that in Job. So Jesus replies to this second temptation and again he goes to Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy 6, 13. And he says, this is verse 8 of our text, it is written, you shall wor worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You know, to receive a, a good thing, even a thing that God has promised by worshiping Satan? It's blasphemous. It's idolatry. It's, it's spiritual adultery. Jesus resists the temptation and chooses instead to wait, to wait for his promised reign to come 
as the scriptures have foretold, in his steady worship of God alone. No shortcut. Last week, as I was preparing for the Wednesday night study on Pastor John's latest book, Come Lord Jesus, chapter 4 in that book talks about this temptation of Jesus. I'm just going to excerpt one piece of it. I'll be teaching this, the, the two chapters this Wednesday, but I just want to excerpt this one piece from chapter 4. I was helped by John's answer to the question, why would Satan make such an offer? Like, why is Satan doing this deal? I'll give you all the authority on earth and and the glory if you'll worship me. Why does Satan think that's a good deal? I was helped by John's answer. Page 50. Because in exchange for this power and authority... Satan would have the worship of Jesus. In other words, instead of having power and authority over the kingdoms of the world, Satan would have the worship of the one who had power and authority over the kingdoms. I'm going to jump to page 51. Satan knew, I'm not reading yet, this is my comment. Satan knew that to be worshipped was a greater tribute and a greater honor and a greater glory than merely having authority. He wanted the ultimate. Satan wanted God's place. Here's a quote, the rest of the quote from Pastor John. This is now jumping to page 51. The ultimate tribute is not to own all things, but to be admired and treasured for the ownership. Why is that? Because while in one sense, rule and ownership are glorious, to be worshipped. On the other hand, to be revered and admired and treasured is an even greater glory. You get it? So Jesus says no to the temptation to worship Satan. And as such, Jesus will receive all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And as he rules in grace and power, he will be worshipped in and for his rule by his people forever and ever and ever. Jesus says, no, and secures this glorious future for the universe and doesn't cave in on the plan of God. Third temptation. For this third Temptation. The devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And this time, you know, Satan's thinking, well, Jesus, if you're going to keep using Scripture, I'm going to start using Scripture. <laughs> so he goes to Psalm 91. This is in chapter, or verse uh, 9 of our text. If you are the Son of God, 
Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Not unlike the temptation of Adam and Eve, Satan takes the word of God and he twists it. Twists it with a little lie, a little unbelief in order to dishonor God and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. So what's the nature of this temptation? Some say it's a, it's a temptation for Jesus to prove to the crowds that he's the son of God by jumping off the temple and, and God catching him. But since no crowds are mentioned in the text, that, that doesn't seem likely. There's no crowds. I think it's more like Satan saying this to Jesus. Here's my shot at it. Oh, Jesus, I can see you are anchored to the word of God in all that you do. So how about this? The Psalms say that if you jump, the angels will guard you. They will catch you. You'll not be harmed. Jesus, jump. Prove the word of God. Jump. Now. Do it now. Jump. Satan's asking Jesus to attempt suicide to test God. As if Jesus needed God to do something to prove his faithfulness. It's crazy. I think Satan's trying to kill Jesus before the gospel goes out, before the appointed time. So to this third and final temptation, Jesus again responds with the scriptures, again from Deuteronomy. This is from Deuteronomy 6, 16, which is quoted in our text in verse 12. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I went to Deuteronomy 6. I thought, I want to see what that, where that quote's coming from. Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa. What happened at Massa? <laughs> what happened at Massa? Exodus 17. The people of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and they were in the wilderness and because of the scarcity of water, they began to grumble and murmur against the Lord. And they demanded of Moses, this is Exodus 17, to give us water. To which Moses replied, this is Exodus 17, 2 again, second half of the verse. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? By their grumbling, by their demanding for by their demanding water, they quote Exodus 17, 7, tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, in that context from which Jesus is quoting, when the people were angry and grumbling and murmuring against the Lord because they didn't have water right now when they wanted it, 
the text says they were testing the Lord to see if he was really with them or not. And that's viewed as as a sin, as this grumbling and murmuring and unbelief in Exodus 17. And Jesus cites that verse to say, to do such a silly thing as jump off the the temple would be a foolish test of the Lord. It would be a sign of my unbelief, not a test of his faithfulness. So Jesus turns it. He would not jump off the temple. He will trust God without foolish tests. Well, at that point, the account comes to a close in verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And though Satan is still active throughout the book of Luke, opposing God and opposing Christ in Christ's life and ministry, Most clearly, Satan returns in Luke, in chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. I'll be back. He comes enters Judas the night Jesus is betrayed, the night before he's crucified. I mentioned in the beginning my, my aims were really simple here, that you'd see Jesus, that you'd build him, see him as glorious, see him as worthy, see him as he really is, the Son of God who took on flesh, became man, to redeem us from the curse of sin. He was the Savior who saves his people from their sins. See him as the king of all kings. Now, now, after his sufferings, after his ascension, seated at the right hand of God, with all authority in heaven and on earth given to him from whence he will come again with all his glory to reign over all things, heaven and earth and the whole universe. See him and trust him and love him and worship him and hope in him and treasure him. I think that's the main point of the text. Second closing point, Seek his help. This is an, in, this is a, this is an inference from the text. I, I, I want to bring in the implications of the text on us, even though they're not explicit. And may we not think lightly of our sins. May we not make friendship with our sins. Jesus fights the fight of faith. He takes up the sword of the Spirit like Ephesians 6 says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
praying and he he does away with Satan's temptations. May we too resist the devil that he may flee from us. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? You pray for daily bread, right? Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So there are implications on our fight of faith, on our hatred of sin, on our pursuit of holiness and righteousness, to be vigilant, take up the word, flee, fight, resist. And in all that, I have to close with Hebrews 4, 12. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing Hebrews 4.14, sorry about that. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in all that fight of faith that I mentioned as an implication of this text, Hebrews 4 says, run to Jesus. He gets your temptation. He's resisted it. Every one of the temptations that you know and face and struggle with, yet without sin, so draw near to him for his help with confidence that you'll receive grace from him and help in your fight of faith against the sins that so easily entangle for triumph, like he triumphed. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for, so much for this glimpse of Jesus and his triumph over Satan, his triumph over sin and temptation, and his... his uh, dogged determination to accomplish our salvation through his sufferings and death into glory. So fill us with faith, fill us with confidence and love and trust now, I pray. Meet us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
1-800-285-5415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.